guys, good morning. Good to see you today. We are at the last day of questions you never thought you could ask in church. It's been a four-week run. The questions have piled in every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, more questions than I could even get to, and there will be some cleanup happening today. But as I shared with you last week, I'm also this morning going to be sharing with you some of the questions I don't ask often out loud either, and letting that just kind of interface with this today. So uh, for the uninitiated, let me explain how this works. Right now you see a number on the screen, and what we invite you to do is this. Take out your cell phones, and any question that you have on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christianity, fellowship of faith, anything's fair game, we invite you to text it in to 815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0-F-O-F. I will get them anonymously. I will do the best job I can to answer them in real time right here on the spot. So while you start getting ready to, to text in, I will bet cleanup. But I'm going to explain to you how I'm going to do some of these, these questions from myself today. You know, I sat down at the beginning of the week, and I'm like, oh, okay, let me just start jotting them down on paper to bring them in today. And like that, you know, you break like the 100 mark, and I'm like, this probably isn't going to be fruitful. So what I'm going to do instead is this. As you text in, or have texted in, on any number of topics... I'm just going to share with you, along with the question being asked, questions I ask in that same arena as well, or questions that your question spark for me. Does that make sense? So we invite you to start texting them in, and let's do cleanup from last week. Um, it's an obsession here at Fellowship of Faith. Why did you shave the beard? Simple answer. About a month ago, I did a wedding for um, Emily Chaffee, who is now Emily Lancaster, along with her husband, Alec, who's the barefoot player that someone texted in last week about. And uh, my wife got this amazing family picture, and it's like, it's my three kids, it's my wife. And, I mean, they're, they're, they're young, and they're vibrant, they're looking great. And I looked at myself in this picture, and I'm like, who is this haggard old man with these people and... Uh, the beard came off. So, that's your why. Let's switch over here. Exactly how and when did sin come? You know, you can actually read the story of this in Genesis chapter 3. It's right in the opening pages of the Bible, which describes the, the, the very way that sin made its way into the world with this, uh, this serpent who came and tempted God's first people, his first creation, Adam and Eve, enticing them and seducing them to do something that was counter to God's plan. And I encourage you to, uh, to read it someday. You know, the question that I ask with how and when sin came into the world is more of the nature of how that sin came about. Because what I wonder is, is it not so much about did they eat of the fruit of this tree and that was the only way they could sin, or could they have sinned in any number of ways? And the reason we have the story of the tree is because that's how it happened to come into the world as opposed to the only way it could come in. And if it's true, what I'm speculating over on this side of things, then was it an inevitability that sin would have eventually come in some fashion or some way, fruit of the tree? 
agree or not. So just some of the things that I've been asking about the sin question as well. Here's a follow-up. Where did the serpent come from? Part of God's creation. Um, You could read Genesis chapter 1. It's day 6 when God made the things that crept along the ground unless the serpent is better understood as a dragon. Because the question that I ask is that when the ancient writers wrote about this thing called the serpent, I realized that this was a common motif to refer to what we think of as a dragon in ancient Near East mythology. And did they actually have a dragon figure in Mile instead of the like, slithery, crawly snake you see going on the ground? It certainly fits with the Revelation 20 um, you know, motifs that you see in Revelation 12, which makes a lot of sense. And if that's the case, was it actually invented or created on day five with the flying things as opposed to the crawling things on the ground? The questions that keep me up at night. (laughs) How about this? How can all religions be right? If you are a Christian, do we believe that Hinduism or Buddha are wrong? Well, I want to challenge the assumption that, that seems to be made in the first part. How can all religions be right? I would argue all religions aren't right. And so to assume that they are, I think, is a mistaken assumption to begin with. Being said, if you were a Christian, do we believe that Hinduism or Buddha are wrong? Can I suggest and encourage you to stop thinking in binary terms when it comes to major belief systems of the world? As the New Testament itself would say, truth is truth. And if it is true, it is of God. And there are many people who have never interfaced with the direct revelation of God that you have in the Old Testament or in Christ himself, who have nonetheless, through what God has written on their heart, discerned truth to varying degrees. So I think it is better to say that in some ways, Hinduism and Buddhism are wrong, and in some way, they aren't. You can't just turn the light switch on or off and dismiss all claims in an instant. The question, of course, that I ask is that when you speak into a contemporary culture like today on a question like this, how do you, on one hand, help those who have a relativistic mindset, who think that all things are the same, not misinterpret what I just said is permission to think, just accept it all without discernment, carte blanche, And at the same time, challenge those who have a strict binary view to open their worldview without them hearing that I'm suggesting that they should be searching for truth in Buddhism and Hinduism rather in the revelation of Christ instead. And that's a practical thing that I wrestle with deeply in these kinds of situations. All right, if that wasn't messy enough, how does God not show himself, or excuse me, why does God not show himself to humanity the same way He showed himself in the Old Testament. Short answer, because God has a history of upping the ante. For those of you who don't understand the metaphor, start playing poker. For those of you who do understand the metaphor, let me repeat it again. God has a way of outdoing himself as history progresses. There's a letter or a collection of sermons 
might be a better way of putting it you'll find in the New Testament. It's called the, the letter to the Hebrews. And it starts like this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, and it's not talking about George Washington here, okay? He spoke to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Zechariah. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to those who came through the Red Sea, to those who lived in the period of the conquest, to those who lived through the exile. In the past, it says God spoke to our forefathers in many ways, in various kinds, in various ways. But then it says now in these last days, He's spoken to us by his son. Can I unpack this a little bit? The argument of Hebrews from chapter 1 to chapter 13 is the supremacy of Christ over all former ways that you will see God revealing himself and acting among people of the Old Testament. And so what that would mean is that what God has revealed in Jesus is far clearer, far better, far more powerful, and far more convincing than anything he has done in the pages of what we call the Old Testament. I bring this up because I suspect or wonder in the question if the person isn't in fact asking, man, I wish God would just send like plagues. Not on me, of course, but I wish God would just send like plagues that I could see like he did to the people in the Old Testament. I wish God would do like the whole like man on quail thing again so I could see and be dazzled into belief. And all the while God is sitting here going, I have given you the greatest the greatest sign, the greatest miracle, the greatest revelation of all. I've taken on human flesh. I've come. I've talked to you. I've lived among you. I've died for you. I've raised from the dead. I've given you something so much better than what I showed you in the OT. And finally, what is the difference between predestination and free will? There are references to both. Well, the difference is this. Predestination is the belief that things are foreordained and set ahead of time, often in such a way that can't be changed regardless of how history or progress or, or, or human choice factors in. That what is set here will happen there, no ifs, ands, or buts. Free will, on the other hand, is, of course, the idea that I am free to make my own choices. I'm going to submit to you today that these are not mutually exclusive categories. Is it possible that I am free to still make my own choices even if things are foreordained? Furthermore, the question that I ask is, for knowledge, the same as predestining something to happen. And the real question that I kind of wrestle with, I think, more than anything is not how it works, but what is predestined and what is left to free will. And that, of course, in many times, in many ways, becomes an unanswerable question. So there we go. There's some cleanup from last Sunday 
So let's jump into what we have today, see what you guys got, and uh, let's get this loaded up. All right. How about this? Is eternal damnation forgiving? I'm going to take a stab at what you're asking here because I'm actually not quite sure what you want me to flush out. Are you asking that if someone is damned to hell or finds themselves in hell, can they find themselves in a place where they could still be forgiven and eternal is not quite so eternal anymore? Or are you saying that eternal damnation is something that God needs to be forgiven for? Something that he's doing wrong in that. So if you'd like to text in, I'll, I'll let you uh, um, follow up. But you know, if you're struggling with hell, you're not the only person here. We've talked about some of this before, even throughout this series, and uh, I think for all of us at one time or another, the thought that a human being, like forever, eternally, is experiencing some form or fashion of punishment by God, it is just hard to grasp. I mean, forever is a long time, and theologians have wrestled with this deeply. I've seen so many different ways that this has been flushed out and played out. Some who suggest it is what it says, and we just got to go with it. But the question then becomes, can I trust that God is good, loving, and just, and that his good, loving, and just nature is far better than my own fleeting glimpses of what I think goodness, justice, and love are supposed to be? So the real question is, can I trust God with this revelation and know that when I see things more clearly on the other side, I will see God's decision and go, yes, despite the fact I couldn't see it on earth, you were good. You were just. You were loving. Glory be your name. Or, as some others have suggested, is it better to look at it another way? Is it better to look as though God is, is in some fashion eternally holding out open arms of grace to those who will receive him? But the reality of hell is not that God has closed his arms, but that people are refusing to turn. And there's indication from the scriptures that that also could be the case, that the people who find themselves in reality damned for eternity are there by their own choice. Refusing God every step of the way because to be separated from God and enduring whatever darkness and horror that might be is still better to them than, bow, than, 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 than bowing a knee. Neither one are cheery pictures, but both, I think, bring about the sober reality of exactly what sin is in our desperate need for God in this world. How about this? 
How does God determine when we are fair to be judged? Examples such as a baby who dies before understanding or someone who suffers from a mental disability. You do see in the ideas, um, in the thought, the thought matrix of the Old Testament. This time or this age that people will come to when they are finally old enough to know the right and know the wrong, to choose the right and reject the wrong. I think of Isaiah 7 through 11 is one example. And so at some level, you get this idea, both from the pages of the Old Testament and from the New, that when God judges, it also isn't binary. As though it's just two judgments on the table, guilty or not guilty, guilty or righteous, and the same sentence is meted out. Jesus himself will say that, that, that those who, who knew little will be punished with few blows, and those who, who knew much will be punished with many. Jesus himself says that those who, who, who choose to, to lead the church and to, to claim to be teachers will be judged more harshly and severely. So I think... At some level, we all stand under the rightful judgment of God because by nature, all of us are sinners from the time we are born. Anyone who looks at a baby and thinks they are good and innocent, in my opinion, has never spent more than 24 hours with them. <laughs> at some level from the day we're born, we are people who are selfish and greedy and all about me, me, me. And as we grow, it manifests in different ways. But stepping back to how God judges fairly, do you believe that God is just? And within that, can you trust him to be so more than your own judgments in the decision? This is the call to faith. I get it. I get it. Great question. How about this? Oh, I just archived something I shouldn't have. Sorry, I lost one of your questions. How about this? Was Jesus married? There seems to be no indication that he was. How about this? Where does a person go or what happens to them after they die if they don't have faith in Christ? You know, the details of how this looks are not well articulated in the Bible. We can see that for those who die in Christ, they go to be with the Lord. They go to be with Christ. They, and in the Bible, we use a number of metaphors to describe this. And it doesn't so much flush out the specifics of what that looks like as much as it just says it's, it's better. It's better by far you're in the presence of the Lord, and it gives pictures of what that looks like, so it is good, and things of that nature. But for those who aren't in Christ, it doesn't play it out after you die. Because, of course, remember, what the Bible is more interested in when we talk about the future is what happens when Christ comes again and the dead are raised than what happens in the interim now before that time as we await 
are those who have died in, uh, outside of Christ in some kind of holding pattern, soul sleep? I don't know. Is it conscious or unconscious? I don't know, and many theologians have argued in different ways to try and flush this out. But there's this description that was once given by Martin Luther that just kind of resonates with me. And maybe let's just step into this for a moment here. He says, imagine your worst, dream, your, your worst nightmare or your best dream. Imagine your worst nightmare or your best dream. And so it will be like for those who die outside or in Christ. Now imagine waking up from that dream, realizing that it's true. So will it be for those who raise on the last day outside or inside of Christ. Which leads me to say, have mercy, O Lord. Why did God create stuff in the universe that we'll probably never discover? Was it just for fun? It may have been. It may have been. At some level, it's a question I can't answer with the certainty. But the sense that I get from God is that he is a God who delights in wondrous variety. He is a God who loves to create. What is it, 750,000 cataloged species of insects? And we just step on them? as though they're all equal? And is that just a fragment of even that little portion of creation? And how far does that expand? God in his infinite nature just loves to create. And then he puts it in our hands. And he says, play with it. Explore it. Build on it. Nurture it. Protect it. Subdue it. Take what I've begun and explode it out infinitely more as people in my image in whom I invest my ruling authority. Blows the mind. You know, the question I've always asked surrounding this line of thinking is what would it look like for people who call on God to actually take that seriously? To no longer be afraid of discovery as though every discovery threatens God more and more but instead to revel in discovering more and more of what God has woven into the fiber of this universe, what would it look like for Christians to not just wait in a holding room called earth until they can die and go to where it matters, but instead to say, God has given me a mission that's tied to this creation called earth 
to develop it to the full, what would it look like then for believers to see their occupations, their jobs, their callings and places in life as holy, sacred duties invested by the creator itself instead of relegating the word holy and sacred to people in professional church work alone? What would the state of this world and our lives look like if people engaged in that kind of way? Good question. This next one is so easy, it's laughable. Is God a dog person or a cat person? God is a dog person. Cats can be found in hell. That's true. <laughs> All right. If the Holy Spirit guides us, aren't all sins against the Holy Spirit? And I have a suspicion, I don't know who you are, but that you're setting me up with another question, but I'm going to let you do it. If the Holy Spirit guides us, aren't all sins against the Holy Spirit? Yeah, in some way they are. I mean, at some level, all sins are against God, even if they're not against God directly. And if the Holy Spirit is part of God, it stands to reason, right? But see, I think what you're setting me up for is this thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing mentioned in the Bible as the unforgivable sin, but you didn't ask that. So how about this? Sorry, let me get it. Is it okay to not go to church, to watch on Facebook and read your Bible? Um, you know, it's tough for me to answer because you're asking, is it okay? There's a lot of baggage that comes with a question like that. Well, I guess it's okay. You know, is it okay to sit on your couch and eat potato chips eight hours a day? I guess it's okay, but is it really the best life for you? Is it the fullness of what God intended for you? Is it cheating you out of the experiences that he wants you to engage in? It leads me to wonder, is church for you purely religious obligation? If so, Facebook and reading your Bible is going to really be attractive. You know, I want to encourage you to think about this differently. You don't go to church. You're part of the church, whether you're in this building or not. See, the church isn't a facility. It's not... A 501c3 corporation, it's not a constitutional charter. It's not an organization. It impacts and speaks into all those things and uses all those things to be sure. But the church is something so much different. You are the church if you are in Christ. Can I ask you this? If you're in a family, is it okay to not be in your family and just watch them on Facebook? And read stories about them? I mean, maybe. 
Maybe life demands it at certain seasons. Maybe there's no way around it. Is it really what you want? God made us to be community creatures. And as amazing a gift as things as print material and social media are, they're never going to replace what God wired in you to have organic connection in real-time presence that isn't separated by ones and zeros. Don't negate that in your life. All right. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew gives us a genealogy. He says it comes in three parts of 14. Why is the third only 13? For the uninitiated, the New Testament opens in a way that no book should ever begin. Not if you want to attract readers anyway. Here it is. Can you see it? Your eyes are good. A genealogy. Here's how the genealogy is structured. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes through and he lists Abraham to David. And then he goes through and lists David to the exile. And then he goes through and lists the exile up until Jesus. Three separate parts. And then he concludes by saying, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Christ. But if you actually count the names in the genealogy, which I know you do, (laughs) you will discover that there are only 13 mentioned in Matthew's third part. Are you not riveted already? And does this not keep you awake at night as you wrestle in the secret place? with God in your faith? A couple of different answers that are actually proposed to this. Answer one is that even though the numbers don't actually match up, he's looking for balance or symmetry in the numbers. Matthew, that is, as he's writing this to kind of show these three different ways in which God worked and bring balance to how God worked in all of them. It's one possibility. The other is this. That if you do this stuff called gematria, and it's the idea that Hebrew letters are the same as Hebrew numbers, so like we have an A and we have a number one, they're separate figures, they have, well, an alpha, you know, I said Hebrew, it's true in Greek too. Alpha, it's like the same thing, it could be a number one or an A, are you following me on this so far? And that if you look at the name of David, who seems to be who this revolves around, and you look at David's name in Hebrew spelled out at 646, which is 14, and that he's actually doing a gematria play off the name. So I hope you feel enlightened. And the question I have is this. Some people get obsessed with this kind of thing, and they're looking for numeric codes all over the place. Some people rejected carte blanche completely because they don't know what to do with it. And my question is this. How often is it actually an intentional move on the part of the biblical writers, and how do we fundamentally know? Because the key just isn't there. All right, interesting question. And we'll take one more because I'm looking at the clock here today. 
Yeah, this is a good one. In seminary, were you and Pastor Mark Buto diametrically opposed in liturgical worship? Let me frame. On the north side of McHenry is a church called Zion, who is Fellowship of Faith's mother in many ways. This church began in 1999, and Zion's been around since like 1282 or something like that. If you were to go to Zion, especially recently, they love, they pride themselves, and they invest themselves in very high forms of liturgical worship. And Pastor Mark Buto is the pastor there today. George Borghart was there too until recently. Um, the cool thing is, is that somehow and in some way, God has predestined that all McHenry pastors have gone to like school together at the same time. Because when Aaron Witt was over at Zion, we were classmates. And then he left and George Borghardt came, and guess what? We were classmates. And then they called Mark Buto, and guess what? We're classmates. And uh, the cool thing was, um, Mark Buto's a gamer, and we used to play games all the time. When uh, we were at seminary, we knew each other really well. And no, we weren't diametrically opposed in either. I'm not diametrically opposed to liturgical worship, and he's not diametrically opposed to the, the styles of modern worship that we do here. We have different emphases. We have different preferences, different things that speak to our soul and seek to suck the marrow out of what those differences can bring to this world. But it's a good day when I would talk to George Borghardt, for example, and he's like, you're looking for contemporary worship? Go to FOF. We're not going to do it here. And if we tried, it would stink. You know? It's not who we are. And for those who are looking for deep liturgical or high church forms of worship, you know what I tell them? There's a great church up north called Zion. We're doing it far better than we will ever come close to. Go worship up there. Because we're not enemies, those of us who do this church thing together. We're in the trench together. Same God, same kingdom, same cause. So uh, to answer your question, no, we weren't. And I am so out of time. I want to thank you so much, guys, for the last few weeks for the questions that you've been submitting. I hope this was helpful for you in some way. It was certainly an enjoyable process for me. And for those of you who are new to Fellowship of Faith, we hope that through this series we've communicated something to you. Fellowship of Faith is a church where we want you to ask questions. Fellowship of Faith is a church where if you have doubts, you're safe to express them. Fellowship of Faith is a church where you can be a heretic and know that God still loves you and we do too. <laughs>